You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.1, Zeta Gundam Part 2. And once again, we are your hosts. I'm Tom, and I'm realizing that I do not remember Double Zeta half so well as I remembered First Gundam and Zeta. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, but already loving it. We are off to a good start. And welcome, or welcome back, as we begin the third season of Mobile Suit Breakdown and our coverage of 1986's 47-episode-long series, Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, or Hiro Senshi Gundamu Double Zeta. The beginning of a new season seems like an opportune moment to revisit who we are and what we're doing here. Then, to give us a better sense of Double Zeta's context, we'll do what we can to cast our minds back to the strange and fantastical world of the mid-1980s. We'll talk about what was going on globally, in Japan, and in the anime industry specifically, just before and during Double Zeta's run. After that, we'll recap and discuss Double Zeta's bizarre and thus far absolutely unique first episode, Prelude to Double Zeta. We'll also include a whirlwind recap of the events from First Gundam and Zeta Gundam that led us to this point. It won't be everything, of course, but it should get you up to speed and ready to watch Double Zeta with us, even if you haven't seen any of the Gundam that came before. But before any of that, we need to take a moment to thank the people who make this podcast possible. MSB is an independent, ad-free, listener-supported podcast, and it would not be possible without the monthly contributions from 339 supporters. And we never would have gotten this far without the listeners who have recommended us to their friends, sent us kind words, written reviews, bought merch from our store, or said hi at a convention hall or in a movie theater back when those were places that people could go. And whether you just started supporting us, whether you were only able to give a little bit, or you're one of the 35 patrons who have been supporting us since the very beginning, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Special thanks go out to our newest supporters who have joined since our last episode of Zeta. Wandering Rook, Stephen B, Jordan W, Andrew C, Christian V, Alex P, Connor S, Valtteri R, Eggmath, Louie N, Douglas LP, Jbeck, Alva C, Justin T, Ex Machina Double Zero, Brian M, Nick LB, Deidre K, Zyperius, Benjamin M, Andrew G, and Zachary G. The podcast would not be possible without your support. Some listeners also sent us items from our wish list and other gifts. Thank you, Megan, Melissa, and Michael for the books, Turlook for the puzzle, DVD, and game, and Leander for sending us our very own real-life Ensign Toby. I wish we had captured the expression on my face when I opened that box. It was a real bright spot in my week, month, <laughs> all of 2020. 
If you don't remember, Toby was a supporting character in last season's Titans News Network. He was a giant Toblerone bar that Lieutenant Tom Thompson subsisted off of while lost in the desert. That he liberated from the mini bar. Yeah, at the Kilimanjaro Resort and Nature Preserve. And so Leander sent us one of those uh, custom Toblerones where you can put your own name on it. And it says Lieutenant Toby, and it is an enormous bar of chocolate. And nougat? Yep. Did Toby get posthumously uh, awarded lieutenant rank? Was he always he was, a lieutenant? He was all Titans are lieutenants, oh, okay. <laughs> according to the, the <laughs> rules we ourselves made up. Uh, but Toby was a lieutenant junior grade. Okay. We are coming up on Mobile Suit Breakdown's second birthday. And longtime listeners know what that means. The second annual Podversary promo is upon us. We have a new limited edition pin commemorating our second year and third season of the podcast. And we will send one out to every patron who is pledging $5 or more on September 1st, 2020. Go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon or check out our social media for pictures of the pin design and more details. Along with the launch of Season 3, we are launching a fresh new website design. In addition to the show notes, audio, and other content from the old site, we've added guest bios, useful links, and more. It's still at the same URL, so you can check it out at GundamPodcast.com. Now, if you are just joining us for the first time, you may be wondering, who are these people? What is this? You might even be asking, what the heck is a Gundam, and why are you making a podcast about it? And how did this one get double the standard amount of Zetas? What even is the standard amount of Zetas for a Gundam? Some good and relevant questions. Well, I'm Nina. I've been interested in Japan since such people were called Japanophiles rather than weebs. If I remember correctly, my first anime was Sailor Moon, shown early in the mornings before I went off to school. Uh, I was also of the generation to be really, really into Sanrio. If you wanted to fit in as a girl in elementary school, you had to have Sanrio. <laughs> Who was your favorite Sanrio character? Kuropi. Kuropi all the way. Is that the frog? Yes. But I was also interested in traditional Japanese arts uh, and wound up majoring in East Asian studies in college. After watching First Gundam and Zeta Gundam for the podcast, I'm not exactly a Gundam noob, but I am watching these shows, including Double Zeta, for the first time. So, no spoilers, you. <laughs> you person who is thinking about spoiling Nina. People just forget, right? I think people forget that I haven't watched these shows. And then they will post spoilers on our Twitter or tag us in spoilery content. Use caution. I'm Tom, and I'm the resident mecha lover on this team. From Transformers and Voltron to Escaflone and Eureka 7, I cannot resist a big stompy fighting machine. And of course, along the way, I fell in love with Gundam 2. I've seen all of this before, but now, with Nina's help and you along for the ride, I'm taking a closer look and I'm realizing just how much I missed along the way. Gundam is a mega franchise that dates back to April 7th, 1979, when the original Mobile Suit Gundam, or Kido Senshi Gundamu, produced by upstart animation studio Sunrise, began airing on Japanese television. 
You can learn much more about First Gundam in MSB's Season 1, but for our purposes right now, what you need to know is that Gundam would eventually meet with tremendous commercial success, and the introduction of Gundam tie-in model kits by toymaker Bandai would trigger a merchandising boom that would literally change the destinies of Sunrise, Bandai, and the whole anime industry. Although planned as a one-off project, Gundam's success would lead to sequels, starting with 1985's Zeta Gundam. More sequels would follow, plus spin-offs, prequels, side projects, retcons, not to mention novelizations, comics, video games, audio dramas, and so much more. And of course, always, every step of the way, Bandai was there to sell more of those model kits, called Gunpla for Gundam Plastic. They've sold more than 500 million of them as of 2019. And I saw a report recently that during the lockdown for the pandemic... Oh, it's shot up, yeah. Yeah, Gunpla sales are through the roof, so who knows what that number looks like now. Two years ago, we started Mobile Suit Breakdown with a deceptively simple mission to watch Gundam from the very beginning until we catch up. All of it. Every episode, every movie, every spinoff every official parody and animated short, in release order. We call the podcast a companion guide to the universes of Gundam. Whether you're watching Gundam for the first time or looking to dive deeper into the text, we'll be right there with you. This is a podcast about exploring Gundam. You don't need to know the deep lore. I certainly don't. And if there's some bit of obscure Gundam knowledge that's too interesting or relevant to ignore, we will explain it. And we're not going to spoil anything for you either. We are watching the show episode by episode and covering it the same way in the podcast. But we're doing more than just watching and chatting about it. Every week, we break down one or two episodes of the show. We analyze the narrative, artistic, and technical choices that went into the episode. We look at the people and companies behind the show, discuss the themes, the visuals, the characters, the message. And we research contemporary and historical context that informed everything about Gundam and its constantly evolving vision of the future. Why was Iselina Eschenbach so obsessed with avenging Garmazabi's death? And what does it have to do with the bureaucratic system of government-sanctioned revenge called Kataki Uchi that developed in Japan's feudal period? Does it change our understanding of the rooftop kiss between Camille and Four in New Hong Kong City to know that kissing in public was banned in Japan for decades prior to the end of World War II and the U.S. occupation? Why is everyone always eating hamburgers? Where did the name Abawaku come from? And what's Audumla supposed to mean anyway? So every episode, after we recap and discuss the weekly episodes of Gundam, we hit the books. And when we're done, we get back into the studio and finish out the podcast by presenting a deep dive into some of the questions raised by the show. You'll find all of our sources cited in the show notes. It's just the two of us writing, researching, recording, and producing the podcast. But sometimes, in lieu of research, we'll bring on guest consultants, physicists, psychologists of the neuro and developmental varieties, fight choreographers, and more, who can offer their expert perspectives on Gundam. This is a podcast about the story Gundam tells, but it's really about the countless different influences that fed into Gundam and the ways it has influenced the world. It's about fans, creators, studios, corporations, sponsors, world events, and even the show's own legacy, all working together over decades to create the Gundam that today exists as much 
inside the fandom as on the screen or in a Gunpla box. It will take us more than a thousand episodes to get there, but we are going to learn so much along the way. But let's leave the future in the future for now and concentrate our attention onto the spring of 1986. And specifically, let's think about the seven days between February 22nd, 1986 and March 1st. Because this one single solitary week amounts to the entire break between the climactic and tragic finale of Zeta Gundam, which aired at 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, February 22nd, and the first episode of Double Zeta, airing in the same time slot, on the same day of the week, on the same TV channel. Gundam is no longer a mere series with a sequel. At this point, it is a full-on franchise. Double Zeta is, in many respects, a direct sequel to Zeta. Before it launched, some of the people working on the show simply referred to it as Zeta Gundam Part 2. But there are going to be major changes to the creative team, the cast, the aesthetic, and the story. It's a new entry, a work unto itself, after a fashion, and we are going to treat it as such. But at the same time, it's inextricable from Zeta Gundam. The two shows exist in conversation with each other. Where Zeta Gundam posed questions, Double Zeta offers answers. And where Zeta seemed to have answers, Double Zeta undermines that certainty. Many Gundam fans who love Zeta don't like what Double Zeta has to say, or they don't like the way it says it. Some will even tell you to skip Double Zeta outright, but I say you can't understand Zeta unless you watch part two. Since I discussed the early and mid-1980s at the beginning of season two, in this episode I really want to focus specifically on what happened while Zeta was airing and before Double Zeta began. So. March 1st, 1985, until February 22nd, 1986. And if you've forgotten what happened in the early 80s, you can just go back and listen to episode 2.1. This is going to be a very fast and not very detailed overview, since I don't know yet what will be most relevant for Double Zeta. The goal is to give Tom and I, and of course all of you, a sense of the feeling of the times. The Cold War was still chugging along at this point. Gorbachev had become de facto leader of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had begun to withdraw from the Soviet-Afghan War. They had been helping the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan fight the Mujahideen, but they were pulling all of their own troops back and leaving the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan to fight them on its own. There were Soviet nuclear weapons tests. Uh, there was quite a lot of spying, uh, people got caught passing documents, there were assassinations, and there was the very first meeting between U.S. President Reagan and Gorbachev. Based on the timelines I looked at, this was a time marked by terrorism, war, and sectarian violence. Bombings in areas around the world, not just in the Middle East and because of conflicts there, but also in Europe, in the United States, in Nepal plane and cruise ship hijackings, hostage takings, the troubles in Ireland were still going on, there was a Peruvian army massacre of civilians, conflict between Israel and Palestine. In Colombia, the Supreme Court justices were taken hostage and many of them were killed. There was a civil war in South Yemen. 
There was an ongoing conflict between Chad and Libya in which France got involved. Uh, rebels finally ended a five-year guerrilla war in Uganda. The president of Haiti was overthrown. There was a civil war in Ethiopia, which exacerbated the famine that was happening at that time. Uh, there was civil unrest in the Philippines, which right around when Double Zeta was starting would lead to the People Power Revolution of February 22nd to 25th, which led to the departure of 20-year dictator Ferdinand Marcos. There was also quite a lot of racially motivated violence, uh, particularly in Europe, the United States, and South Africa, which I'm not going to go into very much because Gundam seems to effectively ignore race as an issue and has gotten worse <laughs> uh, at race over time. There were definitely more black and brown people in first Gundam than in Zeta. And so who knows how Double Zeta will play out. If it becomes relevant, we will talk about it some more. Uh, but it was an ongoing issue in countries around the world. It was during this time that they discovered the hole in the ozone layer. There were numerous natural disasters, including earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, and volcanic eruptions. And Greenpeace's flagship, the Rainbow Warrior, was destroyed by French military agents. It was on its way to protest French nuclear tests in the South Pacific. What did the French agents do? Uh, they, they like blew up the ship, it sank, and a photographer was killed. And then they were caught, uh, the ship had been leaving from New Zealand, and they were caught by New Zealand police. And initially, of course, tried to deny that it was government-sponsored terrorism. <laughs> Uh, but there was too much evidence for that. In terms of its economy, uh, this time in Japan saw the privatization of some major companies. Uh, Japan Telegraph and Telephone, as well as Japan Tobacco and Salt, were both privatized at this time. The economy was shifting from manufacturing, agriculture, resources, resource extraction, to be more technologically focused. Research, computing, telecommunications... There was an increase in domestic spending at this time, improved standards of living. However, this is also when we get the Plaza Accord, which involved the United States, Japan, West Germany, France, and Britain. It was an agreement to depreciate the U.S. dollar vis-a-vis -vis the yen and the Deutschmark in an attempt to decrease the trade imbalance. Japan's economy was very export-focused. Japanese technological goods were relatively inexpensive at the time. Uh, this led to <laughs> huge trade imbalances with other countries. Uh, the Plaza Accord did not effectively decrease the trade imbalance with Japan at all. It did, between the U.S. and Europe, it did not help the U.S. and Japan. Uh, and the appreciation of the yen caused by the Plaza Accords is considered to be one of the driving causes of the bubble economy of the late 80s and early 90s. It also triggered an immediate recession in 86, right? I believe so, but it was brief. I it lasted about a year. On the science and technology front, the space shuttle Discovery completed its mission. The space shuttle Atlantis had its maiden voyage, but we also had the Challenger disaster in early 1986. The Voyager 2 space probe reached Uranus and is still the only probe to have ever done so. Uh, Long-time listeners may recall that Voyager 2 reached Jupiter in 1979 and is still going, meaning it has been in operation for 42 years. It is such a good spacecraft. 
the Soviet Union's Mir space station was launched, the first ever Japanese astronauts were chosen, and Japan's first interplanetary spacecraft, Sakigake, was also launched. It was, in addition to being Japan's first interplanetary spacecraft, it was the first interplanetary spacecraft by any country other than the USA or the Soviet Union. Japan also hosted Expo 85, which was a world's fair focusing on science and technology in the home and in everyday life. Later on, Tom is going to talk a little bit about what industry insiders had to say about the state of anime in 1986, and one of them is going to talk about 3D animation technology and screen technology, and is very likely referencing this expo. It was really a chance for them to showcase Japanese technology in particular, and many of the pavilions were specifically designed with children in mind and to teach children about science and technology. The wreck of the Titanic was located, and I don't think we can discount the effect that deep sea exploration has on our imagination about space. And on the personal technology front, Commodore launched the Amiga personal computer. Super Mario Brothers was released, Windows 1.0 was released, and the very first computer virus for MS-DOS <laughs> happened, was created. <laughs> I don't know how to describe this for a computer virus. It was called Brain, and was created by a couple of brothers in Pakistan who claimed that they created it to protect like proprietary software that they had made but it clearly acted in ways that they had not anticipated. <laughs> and there you have it. The world was wrecked by sectarian conflict. The environment was even more damaged than had previously been understood. At the same time, the ability of human beings to visit and study space was expanding seemingly constantly, and computer technology became more accessible and played an increasing role in people's daily lives. This is the world our writers are creating within. This is the point from which many of them would be extrapolating the future of UC-88. If Double Zeta is going to be your first foray into Gundam, or if it's been a while, you might appreciate an abbreviated recap of the events that led us to this point. Let us begin. It is the year 0088 of what is called the Universal Century, a new era for humanity that began when the majority of the human population left Earth to live, work, and die in hundreds of orbital space colonies. This collection of orbiting colonies, grouped into vast space cities called sides, together with the still-inhabited Earth and the many underground cities on the Moon, constitutes the Earth Sphere, and it has all been ruled by the Earth Federation. The people living in space have developed a new identity, that of Spacenoids. But the Earth Federation is dominated by the handful of elite Earthnoids still residing on the planet. Tension and unrest are rampant. Twenty years ago, groups of space colonies began to break away from the Earth Federation. Strongest among these was Side 3, more commonly known as Xeon, a name it took from Spacenoid independence crusader Xeon Zumdekun. But after Xeon Dekun's death, Xeon fell under the sway of the militaristic and fascist Zabi clan. In UC-79, claiming to be fighting beneath the banner of Spacenoid Liberation, the Zabis launched a war of conquest against the Federation and the other sides. The damage was cataclysmic. Entire colonies were destroyed, 
and during the fighting, one colony deorbited and crashed into the Earth, causing untold harm. Within the first month of the conflict, more than half of the entire human population was killed. Xeon's early successes were made possible by a new weapon, 20-meter-tall humanoid war machines called mobile suits. But as they overextended their resources and the full might of the vast Federation came to bear, the war fell into a stalemate that was only broken by a 15-year-old boy, a spaceship full of refugees, and an experimental new weapon. On a backwater colony in the Side 7 region of space, the Federation developed its own mobile suits, foremost of which was the powerful new Gundam. But a lightning raid by Xeon commandos, under the command of mysterious masked ace Char Asnabel, destroyed the Gundam production facility and killed the intended pilots. Instead, the Gundam fell into the hands of a gloomy technology enthusiast named Amuro Ray, the son of the Gundam's lead engineer. Escaping with a handful of other teenagers aboard the state-of-the-art space carrier White Base, Amuro and the Gundam fought desperately to survive in the face of ceaseless Xeon attacks. Pursued relentlessly by Shar Aznabal, the White Base crisscrossed the Earth on its way to safe haven in the Earth Federation's secret Jaburo base. As they fought, the bonds between the crew became unbreakable, and with every battle, something strange was growing inside Amuro. A new awareness, a strange sort of sensitivity. There was no safety for the White Base at Jaburo. By then, the Federation High Command had realized that the civilian children aboard the ship were the perfect distraction, and they were ordered back into space to draw attention away from the Federation's grand counterattack. While the White Base had been struggling, the Federation had gathered all its resources and assembled a vast new force. Fleets of warships, fighters, carriers, transports, but most importantly of all, their own legions of mobile suits. With Xeon's forces fruitlessly pursuing the White Base, this new force began preparations for the operation that would at last bring the war to a close. But while the White Base and the Federation's Grand Fleet captured one Xeon space fortress after another, the change within Amuro reached its apotheosis. He gained a kind of psychic power, the ability to communicate across vast distances with only his mind, the ability to see beyond sight, even to predict the future. He became what the old Spacenoid Independence leader Xeon Dekun had once predicted, a human being whose experience in space had triggered a new evolution, beyond the limits of ordinary humanity. A new type. And with his powers, he was able to protect his friends. When Xeonic Might gasped its last at the space fortress Abawaku, and the final clash with Shar left the Gundam a smoldering wreck, Amuro and all his friends escaped. But the end of a war is never the end of the story. In the seven years that passed after winning the one-year war against Xeon, the Federation grew increasingly hostile to its colonial space-noid subjects. All available resources and attention were directed toward rebuilding the devastated Earth. The devastated colonies, laboring under high taxes and repressive laws, would have to fend for themselves. Yet any talk of independence or any sympathy for the defeated Xeon cause was subject to swift and arbitrary punishment 
dealt out by a new elite unit of so-called peacekeepers, the Titans. A coalition of groups advocating for increased colonial autonomy, protection of the Earth's environment, and relocation of the Federation's capital into space, called AUG, organized a major political rally at the 30 Bunch Colony. In response, the Titans used poison gas to exterminate the colony. In the wake of this atrocity, Ayug turned from peaceful organizing to violent resistance, making common cause with industrial megacorporation Anaheim Electronics and other space-based oligarchs. The Ayug evolved from a group of political dissidents into a small but dedicated force of Federation defectors and former Xeon soldiers. Led by Blex Forer, a Commodore in the Federation forces, and armed with state-of-the-art mobile suits by their allies at Anaheim Electronics, Ayug launched a series of raids against Titan facilities. One such raid brought the mysterious ace Quattro Bagina to the Green Oasis and Grips colonies in the Side 7 region of space. There he met Camille Bedan, a young man overflowing with righteous rage against the Titans. Thrown together by circumstances, Camille and Quattro collaborated in the theft of the new Gundam Mark II mobile suits developed by the Titans. After escaping back to the Ayug flagship, the Argama, Camille became one of the Ayug's most important pilots. Eventually piloting the Zeta Gundam, a mobile suit he designed himself, Camille would travel all throughout the Earth's sphere and play a key role in the fight against the Titans. As his own new type abilities began to manifest, Camille's battles brought him into contact with a series of mysterious young women, and time and again, the strange power of the new types drew them together. These women were new types, yes, but their powers were brought forth not by natural evolution and personal experience the way Camille's and Amro's had been. They were the products of cruel, abusive experimentation. New types made by science. Cyber new types. When the war snatched their life's breath away, one by one, they left something of themselves behind within Camille's own soul. As the battles between the Ayug and the Titans reached a fever pitch, a third player entered the game, Axis, an asteroid in the belt between Mars and Jupiter, which had once upon a time been excavated by Xeonic industry for its mineral resources, then converted into a place of exile for Xeon hardliners fleeing defeat in the One-Year War. Axis arrived in the Earth's sphere. It brought with it countless ships and mobile suits, young soldiers and grizzled veterans alike ready to fight once more for Xeon. But most importantly of all, it brought with it the last survivor of the Zabi clan, eight-year-old Mineva and her regent, Haman Karn. As Ayug and the Titans slugged it out, the people of Axis consolidated their power and prepared to reclaim what they saw as their sovereign's birthright, hegemony in space. As for Camille, he would join in the Ayug's final battle against the Titans, accompanied by the ghosts of the fallen, all those people he had failed to save. He fought a climactic duel against the last of the Titans' leaders, a would-be messiah, so inconsequential we need not even mention his name. Although triumphant, Camille's mind was shattered in the battle. His childhood friend turned Ayug comrade Fa Yuri found him drifting after the battle and brought him back to the badly damaged Argama. And there, 
with the Ayug flagship limping away from the climactic battle of what will someday be called the Grips Conflict, is where Gundam Double Zeta begins. normal for us, as normal as anything can be, you know, when we've only done this twice before. Coming into a new series, we watch the first few episodes to get a feel for what's happening and whether or not we want to group any episodes together. Also to get a feel for anything we feel that should be covered in background or that we should try to research as background. But in both First Gundam and in Zeta, we did a preliminary episode zero as we often termed them, even though we couldn't necessarily number them that way. Uh, where we look at just sort of the state of the anime industry, the world, uh, and any background about the show from production, but before airing began. However, this first episode of <laughs> Double Zeta is so strange, or at least completely different from any other episode of Gundam we have seen to date. And I would say, even in my experience watching anime, different from most anime episodes I've ever seen, that it actually lends itself well to being included in our <laughs> episode zero background on the show. Yeah, what we would normally do in this episode is to offer a kind of prelude to the upcoming series. And what could be more appropriate for us than to discuss prelude to Double Zeta? We, of course, have to address the opening theme first. Uh, this got not spoiled for me exactly, but I saw so many comments about Anime Janai uh, that when I heard the opening song, I was like, oh, this is what everyone is talking about all the time. Yeah. You got it. It's a great opening, isn't it? Eh. It's very... What? Hang on. It's, it's catchy. Yes. It's very catchy. I don't particularly like the song. <laughs> Tom is flabbergasted. He is so appalled that he has no words to speak. His mouth is just opening and closing silently as he looks at me with disappointment and then looks down at his notes. You'll come around. <laughs> hey, I already said it was catchy. I'm sure I'll get fond of it <laughs> due to repeated exposure. I'm sure you will too. Yes, we are back to covering a proper opening song. If you remember from Zeta Gundam, because we were watching an official Western release, we did not get the original opening songs that aired when it was on TV. The first thing that pops into my head about it is, when did the term anime really start getting used and get popular? Because here it's clear that what they mean is that anime is fake, and what's depicted in this show is real. I don't know when the term anime or anime first became used for this kind of animated program on TV. I do know that when this specific branch of the animation medium first began back in 1963 with Astro Boy or Mighty Atom, uh, it was referred to at that time as TV manga, not anime. It's not a distinction that throws me off terribly because as we've seen from previous series of Gundam, they put a lot of stock in showing sort of realistically depicted people 
emotions, harsh reality. It's not a fantasy. Yeah, whatever you might think about the previous Gundam shows, you have to admit that there is at least a uh, a pretension to be doing something more serious than the other stuff that you would see on TV at the time. I should note, this is the first Gundam opening with lyrics that were not written by Tomino himself. Comparing the contents of the opening animation-wise to those of Zeta, I noticed it's very explicit with the theme of evolution through the Gundam series. You know, you get this uh, sort of pre-human skull that then evolves into a human and then evolves into Amuro, then Camille, and then our new as yet unnamed main character. Although I guess he does he gets tell named us in name. the episode. Yeah, so Amuro evolves into Camille, evolves into Judo. The opening is much more focused on Judo than Zeta was. Zeta was about all of these different characters, but this opening mostly shows the Zeta mobile suit flying around, some space, some of the moon, and then a lot of Judo. The only other characters who appear before that ending, where all the new characters line up, uh, are, as I said, Amuro, Camille, Quattro, and Judo. I'm not going to recap the episode in intense detail because a lot of it is actually things that we've already discussed in our own recapping of First Gundam and Zeta Gundam. That's one of the things that feels odd here. They spend a good portion giving us a background history of humanity in space, the technology, so the mobile suits, the Minovsky particles, the space colonies. They explain the One Year War and the zombies. Amuro and the Gundam, new types, the next war seven years later, who the Titans are, who Axis is, and then where we are now. That we have an injured Camille, a severely damaged Argama heading for repair and uh, in need of some TLC. <laughs> this to me feels so much like the kind of thing that would have been more useful at the beginning of Zeta when it had been some years... <laughs> since anyone had watched a Gundam show, as opposed to here where it's only been a week since the last episode of Zeta came out. However, I realized something uh, interesting and kind of strange. And what is that? By explaining characters and terminology, it simultaneously makes the show more accessible to new viewers. It seems very clear the more I think about this episode that they really wanted to get people watching Double Zeta who weren't just people who had watched Zeta. They wanted new people entering at this show. Yes, I think that's 100% true. I think that's probably driving a lot of the decisions that go into both this episode and also into Double Zeta as a whole. When you think about Zeta Gundam, its cast, the ages of the characters, the themes of everything, the ways it engages directly with First Gundam's legacy, Zeta was a show made for people who watched First Gundam when it was on TV. Zeta is for that generation who were five, six years older and wanted a show that was five or six years more mature. Double Zeta from the beginning is signaling very clearly that it is not for that crowd. I was going to say, a lot of the tone of this episode, a lot of 
the little bits in it and the way that they break up some of the heavier aspects of the past story signal to us that there's going to be a difference in tone here and that it is for a different and quite probably somewhat younger audience. We also have to remember this is an era when you can't go out and rent tapes of the previous show. You couldn't actually get caught up on Zeta before starting Double Zeta. So if you had fallen off of Zeta or not been watching it, it would be very difficult to catch up, to get into Double Zeta, where it begins, mere moments after the end of Zeta. We then have a section which is Fa remembering. They use a bunch of old footage from previous series throughout this episode, but here it's used quite intensely. Uh, you know, all of her memories with Camille, and then that he loved someone else, so it transitions to him and four. And then Char's memory is embedded in that memory <laughs> of the, the battle that killed Lala, and that people keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, and it ends by saying something about how the tears of time are endless before transitioning to, who's that mobile suit? Yes. <laughs> Uh, a bit of a, a bit of a stark shift there. I want to talk though about that section that reuses a bunch of animation. There's sort of three things that are going on here. First is uh, that they are just reusing clips of animation from First Gundam, uh, from the movies actually, not from the TV show, and then from Zeta to sort of retell those stories. They also, at a couple of places, include some new visuals, concept art, I think. There's one of like a very early powered spacesuit prototype mobile suit thing that I'd never seen before. There's some beautiful concept art of colonies in space, just sort of uh, landscape style paintings and drawings. There's also one bit where they pan across some concept art of the Zeta Gundam in particular. It's actually one that's kind of like transparent, so you can see inside the Zeta Gundam's systems. But based on that footage, it doesn't look like they're panning across an animation cell the way they usually do. It looks like they're actually just filming some drawn on paper uh, concept art which would make this the first live-action segment to appear in an uh, episode of Gundam. Then the third thing they're doing is taking existing animation, adding new dialogue, and using it uh, to try to create a new story section. They also, in many of these segments, use old animation but add new subtitles or titles to explain the names of important people or mobile suits or places so that your audience, again, is both hearing it, but also seeing it written out. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned those titles, because I'm going to come back to them in a second. Okay. Um, all of this, by the way, is being narrated. Uh, the narrator for this segment is the same person who narrated the Gundam movies. Whereas the Who's That Mobile Suit section is narrated by Shinta, Kum, and Quattro. <laughs> Those sections where they've taken existing animation, uh, redubbed it to add new dialogue, and used it to create uh, a new story, it's not very well done, which I'm commenting on because it is not a new thing for Gundam to reuse existing cuts of animation in new contexts in order to, you know, tell a different story. So why is it so bad in this episode? The bit between Bright and Fa especially is just like, the voices sound weird. Fa leaves super abruptly. Yeah, that section is not well animated. It feels awkward. It feels amateurish. 
Without giving away too much about the next couple of episodes, this episode feels like it was made by a different team. Yeah, I looked into that. Probably with completely different resource access. <laughs> we kind of got that sense when we first watched this. And so I looked into who worked on this episode a little bit. Um, and it's a whole long list of people who only worked on this episode and did not work on any of the other episodes of Double Zeta. And in fact, a lot of them don't have any other anime credits at all, at least in English. Now, it's possible that they worked on other anime projects, but that those projects were never popular enough in English to get entered into things like Anime News Network's Encyclopedia, which is mostly what I rely on for staff credits. And another possibility is that these were anime industry people who, uh, because of the quality of this episode, did not want to be associated with it and so used pseudonyms. We've seen that happen before. But I think it's more likely that it actually was a whole bunch of people who were not experienced animators, were not experienced in the anime industry, maybe had film production experience from some other industry. There were a couple of third-party companies, uh, outsourcing companies that were referenced in the credits, including um, the one that did those titles that Nina mentioned earlier. Uh, and they besides doing titles for Gundam Double Zeta, also do titles for a handful of pornographic anime. <laughs> so, like, not the top-tier talent, not the people who usually work on Gundam. Another possible explanation for why this episode turned out the way it did is there was a lot of chaos during the changeover between Zeta and Double Zeta. Mobile suit designs weren't approved on time. They had to be redone, you know, a lot of staff was switching over from one project to the next. It's possible that they desperately needed an additional week and so had to come up with something on the quick to fill the time slot. There's the mobile suit section in the middle, but right after the mobile suit section, we're also going to have one that is basically a supercut of Women of Gundam, mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of they do include the clip of Camille punching Char, uh, of Amaro and Shaquatro mm -hmm. sharing a drink, of Bright beaten up. But that section is mostly a supercut of various women characters from First Gundam and Zeta over some instrumental music. Both of these segments feel a bit like filler to me. Uh, I suppose it depends on... Whether or not these characters are significant in Double Zeta, I suppose if Fawn Camille end up being very important, or if it's very important to establish the new types always have tragic romances, <laughs> then that first section is good background. But that second section, most of the women it shows us are dead. <laughs> well, we are talking about trying to bring in new viewers. And I think this is like a cut of some of their best animation, some of their mm. most interesting characters, just like really appealing uh, parts of the show. Look at all the beautiful ladies. Yeah, this is a <laughs> highlight reel. Also, your main character might get to punch some grown-ups. Ah, sweet. Love to punch a grown-up. <laughs> your point being that these sections are more about showcasing the animation than they are about establishing background in the story. You know, we've established a lot of background already, and there's going to be a little bit more of that coming up. I do think the characters that they choose to show here are uh, fan favorites, very appealing characters. 
Ni har du. Ja. Matilda san. Hamon. <laughs> Now the section about mobile suits. Again, stands out because it breaks up some of the heaviness. You know, it's right after we've just seen that humanity is not actually improving. They keep going to war. New types have tragic love lives. <laughs> uh, and then we cut to this very fun, upbeat, ooh, look at these cool mobile suits. Uh, there's some pretty intense fourth wall breaking when they talk about the Hyakushiki and the narrator describes it as one of the most famous mobile suits of the series. <laughs> the narrator who is internal to the world of Gundam. Right. But also knows that it's a series. We've now switched over to the different narrator, uh, to Quattro narrating. This is fascinating because this section of the show takes place within the world of the show. Kind of. Right. It's Shinta and Kum and Quattro as Shinta, Kum, and Quattro narrating this story. But also, like Nina said, breaking through that fourth wall. I think this is the first time within the show that they've explained that the Rick in Rick Diaz is because it's space operable. Uh, they also talk about how transforming suits were really the hallmark of the most recent war. Uh, This is the first time that they call funnels funnels uh, with respect to the Kubelet. I had heard people call them that within sort of Gumpla, uh, but it, they are never called that in the show <laughs> until, until now. now. Yeah. <laughs> they don't call them anything. <laughs> They're just there. This is also where we learn that the Diaz in Rick Diaz comes from Bartholomew Diaz, the explorer. And that Quattro is the one who named it. Yeah. And that it's made of Gundarium. Now, I have often <laughs> expressed my frustration with a sense that the show wants me to be able to identify all of these mobile suits, but when they're flashing by quickly on the screen, in the heat of battle, in a crowd full of explosions, it's very difficult to actually do that. This may be an effort to counteract that frustration <laughs> that I feel for an audience. Look, here's very clear images of the different ones, and if they have a famous pilot and... Scenes that they're in from the show. Also potentially encouraging those new audience members to start fixating on mobile suits because that's where the money is. <laughs> <laughs> they'll get really into mobile suits and then they'll buy Gunpla and then they'll get really into Gunpla and then we've got them. <laughs> Did you notice that it's within the world of the series, this whole little uh, identify the mobile suit contest is like sponsored by a mobile suit magazine, mobile suit catalog monthly. Which later in the same episode, Judo claims to read regularly. And then it's not until this last third, maybe even less of the episode, that we get to our new protagonist, which to me as an adult, sort of steeped in the sort of media that I've grown up watching, it feels like, wait a second, you're going to give away your protagonist in this very, like, undramatic, boring way when you could have had, like, a cool reveal? Excuse me, what do you mean boring or undramatic? There's a trippy kaleidoscopic color display on the screen. There's all kinds of 3D CG graphics coming at you. I, I want to come back to the computer stuff at the end. But, <laughs> um, to have him just pop up on the screen as a drawing and be like, I'm Judo Ashta. An unanimated drawing, by the way. 
This isn't a bit where everyone is like, they're basically like paper dolls. Um, none of them are, are moving, but they're all in dynamic poses and they're just being sort of moved around the screen. In his own words, he introduces himself as someone who has to work to survive, even though we can tell he's quite young and that he's a junker, which immediately got me very excited because one of the things that has felt like it was missing from Gundam for me is any kind of direct treatment of class in the world that they live in. Because often when you have a population that gets pushed out into colonies, sort of pushed out onto the fringes, those tend to be people who are poorer or you know people who lack any political power. And yet that's never really been addressed in Gundam. And when you think about our protagonists so far, both Amuro and Camille, while they are space noids and so they are disadvantaged in that way, well, Amuro isn't even really, he was born on Earth. He lives in space now, but uh, both of them have a lot of access to power and money. <laughs> you know, we get a sense of privileged upbringings, even if they were unhappy and had horrible parents. Mm -hmm. That's still a far cry from, I live in a slum and I don't go to school because I have to work all the time. They make a point of showing in this scene, which is full of cuts from what will be the first like real episode, uh, that Judo has a motorcycle, which I assume would have told a, an audience at that time something about him. Like that's meant to tell us something about him as a person. I feel like that still works today to tell us something about him. But it might be something different. We should be hesitant about jumping to contemporary conclusions about that without further research. You're right, that's wise introduces his friends and his sister, mentions that they are going to try to steal the Zeta Gundam so that they can leave their backwater colony, uh, reveals that Yazan is alive. Again, something that could have been a fun, or not, I don't know, fun. Yazan is never <laughs> fun. Could have been an exciting surprise, but instead now we just know. <laughs> yes, they get pretty explicit sort of giving the game away here. They basically tell us that Judo is a new type. In fact, Judo says that all kids are new types and that they're going to show adults that. And he skips right to the important part and tells us all that he hates adults. At this point, that feels like a requirement for a Gundam protagonist. Cannot be protag unless hate grown-ups. <laughs> we also get a very clear sense of his motivations. Really, the motivations of this whole little group of kids because they want to steal the Gundam, they want to get rich, and they want to get away from their cruddy home. The two things that struck me the most on the first viewing, to the point where I laughed about them, it felt funny. They did a lot of very dramatic, showy cuts in a way that is completely different from the show itself. Wipe cuts, iris cuts, one of them looks like a computer animated page turn. <laughs> Just really showing off. Whenever they were doing the silhouette of the mobile suit, they would then have the color uh, like fly in from all over the screen in little segments to cover it. And a, another time, something like exploded into a million atoms and dissolved. Some very heavy use of computer animation in this episode. And the kind of computer animation that you can tell is early computer animation. Um some of the Double Zeta titles in the intro and their little sort of eye-catch moments were computer animated. At one point, they had these uh, sort of three-dimensional globes fly in that had images of the war dead on them, and they would float through space and then uh, 
sort of disappear back into the distance. <laughs> and then there was the whole scene that Tom mentioned where there was this psychedelic color morphing rotating background with cutouts of the characters floating in and out. And then some floating, twisting, colorful star shapes, which again, just felt so strange. <laughs> the way I described it when I first saw it is when you first learn how to use PowerPoint and they teach you about all the cool effects you can put on your slides. And so you put cool effects on every single slide and you animate all your titles and you make sure to use like a different transition on every slide. <laughs> uh, that's sort of what it felt like. That is, I think, exactly what it is. After this talkback finishes, I'm going to talk a little bit about an article I read with some uh, quotes from anime industry figures from 1986, talking about the future of the industry as they perceived it. And one of them that I am not going to talk about in that section, but I will mention here, is someone who was talking about how the computer was infiltrating the anime industry. And this is a moment when computer animation is really starting to become a practical thing. And of course, when you have a new tool like that, you're going to use it unwisely. There is a bit of conventional knowledge about the Gundam franchise, which says that the first appearance of computer-assisted animation in Gundam is in the movie Char's Counterattack, which is going to come out in 88. This is wrong, because clearly the first use of computer-assisted animation is this episode, Prelude to Double Zeta. So take that, conventional wisdom. Just goes to show that most of the conventional wisdom doesn't really consider this part of the series. <laughs> More of an extended advertisement. And now Tom gives us a glimpse into the state of the anime industry in 1986. Thanks to Black Otaku, who has been publishing scans and translations from old issues of New Type magazine on his blog, oldtypenewtype.tumblr.com, we were able to get a view into the mood of the animation industry at the beginning of the year 1986. So we're talking about just a few months before Double Zeta began its run. This article interviewed 21 prominent figures in the anime industry and asked them to talk about their hopes and predictions for the coming year. While none of those who were interviewed would work directly on Double Zeta, seeing the collective thoughts of so many different animators, directors, producers, and voice actors, including legends like Yasuhiko Yoshikazu, Itano Ichiro, and Kawamura Shoji, gives us a rare opportunity to look back and identify patterns and trends that would then affect the industry in that moment when Double Zeta was being made. Fans of Gundam who watch Zeta and Double Zeta years or decades after they were made often find the abrupt change in mood and tone between the one and the other surprising and off-putting. But as I read this article, it became more and more clear to me that those changes were the natural product of trends running through the whole animation industry. To set the scene for you, 
Practically everyone who offered their thoughts to Newtype Mag for this article fell somewhere on a spectrum that ranged between dissatisfied with the state of the anime industry in 1985 to totally checked out from the anime industry. I cannot emphasize enough how unhappy everybody was with the state of things in 85, which was when Zeta came out. Frequent subjects of complaint were 1985's glut of anime clearly intended for college-aged and adult anime maniacs. They say maniacs because at this point the term otaku has not yet become common. As well as complaining about the relative paucity of anime designed for late elementary and middle school kids, who previously had been the kind of core anime demographic. This also reflects a more generalized complaint. There was too much dreary anime, too many over-serious plodding storylines. Not enough of the energetic, invigorating anime. Miyazaki Hayao, who at this point had only just established his reputation as a star director a few years prior with 1984's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and who was just about to release 1986's Laputa, Castle in the Sky, well, he in particular talked about how there ought to be anime for the kids between the ages of 12 and 15, those who were ignored and excluded from society. His mentor and collaborator, Takahata Isao, in the middle of a years-long break from directing anime, concurred, and he expressed a special desire for anime that was exciting, the sort of thing that filled you up with energy when you watched it, so much energy that you couldn't help but get up and jump around and move. Many others echoed this call for more exciting anime. Uh, one producer at Sunrise called on animators to defeat this lethargic mood, and he hoped to make anime that would allow his studio to seriously converse with their child viewers. Kudo Yuki, an actor and voice actor who would play the lead in Blood the Last Vampire, as well as major roles in Hollywood movies like Snow Falling on Cedars, Memoirs of a Geisha, and Rush Hour 3, wanted anime that's fun to watch, anime that would make her happy. Others called out the state of sci-fi or even robot animation specifically. Mangaka Yuki Masami, who at the time was making body-swapping sci-fi story Birdie the Mighty, but would perhaps achieve his greatest fame a few years later with the manga version of Mobile Police Patlaber, listed Robot Animation That Isn't Dark as one of the things he most wanted to see in 1986. <laughs> he went on to say, I want anime that I wouldn't be able to take my eyes off of, something that is both easy to watch and amusing. Another producer wrote, I'd like to see different kinds of sci-fi. Simplistic anime that has funny gags and anime that explores heavy themes. Fujikawa Keisuke, writer for projects ranging from Farewell Space Battleship Yamato and robot animation like Don Cougar, Super Beast Machine God, Great Mazinger, Transformers Headmasters, UFO Grendizer, and God Mars, and so on, declared that his intention was to focus on sci-fi that has stories of people in it, instead of just hardcore sci-fi. He wanted to explore the nature of youth and connect with younger viewers in different ways. Yokoyama Kenji, a producer at Toei Animation, offered a unique take on all of this. Looking around at kids in the 1980s, he diagnosed their lives as overmanaged, overscheduled. What they needed from anime was not comfort, as Miyazaki had suggested, but rather an outlet to vent their rage against adults and the world. 
And he pointed out that as the society they inhabited became more and more focused on material wealth, as it became more and more obvious that they lived in an age when everything could be had for the right price, well then it was only natural for kids to start seeing things like corruption, greed, and even corporate scandals as the real monstrosities. So having read all of those comments, what can we expect from Double Zeta? Well, we're probably going to see a less serious, more energetic kind of anime. One that tries to connect with a younger audience, to engage with the struggles of kids in the 12 to 15 year age range, and which allows them to vent their rage and frustration at a greedy, corrupt world. It will focus more on being fun and engaging than Zeta ever did, and it will be aimed not so much at pre-existing anime maniacs as at a newer and younger audience, whose over-scheduled, over-restricted lives make them hungry for a sense of freedom, escape, and power. Next time on episode 3.2, In Over Their Heads, we cover Double Zeta, episode 1, and... Uh, it's actually episode 2. Oh, okay. We cover Double Zeta, episode 1, it's episode 2, and... Hairstyles that can withstand hours in a helmet. Fresh fruit and veg, yahoo! Catatonia. A philosophical discussion of the benefits and purpose of schooling. Shinta and Kum join the fight. Touched by a new type. Tomino Yoshiyuki's self-defense against fresh fruit. I came here to kick adults and steal Gundams. My cabbages! And Bright does more in 20 minutes than he did in all of Zeta Gundam. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website gundampodcast.com You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, It's a shame that the Zeta cinematic universe never took off, but at least we got Zeta, Double Zeta, and the complete works of ZZ Top out your window at Passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes to us from Church. Thank you, Church. And thank you for listening. Shouting! 
<laughs> it's not even all of the bad stuff, it's just the big ones because I need to take a paper cutter. Why would you make so many bad things? Okay. <clears throat> Let me not be stepping on a bunch of <laughs> rustly paper, though, while we do that. Some good and relevant broom. Some good and relevant broom. <laughs> I just realized that the number of years of Gundam Counter is going to tick up every year. <laughs> 42 years. <Yep>. 43. <laughs> We will probably, well, we'll definitely still be doing this when it's 50. Yep. <laughs> That'll be a good year for us. All right, now one is Tom Thompson. You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans. All right, I'm going to do a very silly one, or try to. Uh, I hope you're not offended. <laughs> Um, you're listening to season three of Mobile Suit Never-Ending Talking About Robot Stuff, a podcast covering the entirety of a mega franchise that will never die. For new fans, old fans, and people who we hope will watch because this is our livelihood. <laughs> we watch the show, we talk about it, we look things up on Wikipedia and then tell you about them. Excuse you, we use many resources other than Wikipedia. I'm not sure there exists a single episode where we didn't use Wikipedia. At least a little bit. But we don't just use no. Wikipedia. <laughs> I said I was being silly. <laughs> None of what I have said so far is 100% accurate. <laughs> I'm sorry, please continue. I'm done. I'm done. You're listening to a podcast I talked my wife into making with me. We attempt to demonstrate the benefits of a liberal arts education. Protect the humanities and humanity. And manatees. Do you want to do the back and forth one? Oh, I forgot. Sorry. Um, do you have it in front of you? I forgot to write it down. Yeah, I think it was good that you didn't read that whole thing by yourself. <laughs> back to the word mines. <laughs> back to the, the takes mines. The mines full of takes. They demand our takes from us. <laughs> I, I have a, an intro of a sort. Hit me with it. Hit me with it. Come closer. <laughs> I don't know if my microphone, I don't know if my cable will reach. Punch! Oh, the rings and everything. <laughs> All right, I had an idea for a meme when you talked about Amarotic Meal to Judo. Uh, and it's that clearly you need to do a mock like Pokemon evolution, and the evolution stone needs to be labeled like a trauma. <laughs> Quattro used trauma stone. Judo is evolving. <laughs>